Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, Happy New Year. Uh, We're off to a a start already. Maybe it feels like last year was way behind you, but there are uh, lots of changes, lots of things that are happening. And I know in your home and my home as we get ready for what's next in your lives and in your vocation and what God wants to do in your hearts. Um, And so I'm excited that we have something new as well happening at River Tree as we uh, jump into a new series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you're a guest with us, visiting with us, just getting connected with us, you've you've timed it well uh, to be part of something that we're going to be doing uh, for a while. Really, over uh, the last few years, uh, God kind of brings us back to a gospel uh, periodically. And so to start the Gospel of Mark together uh, will be a time where we'll just begin to walk through uh, each chapter, uh, each of the stories, each of the accounts. And so it gives us, even as a church, something uh, to be reading together, uh, to be reflecting on together. If you're looking for something to study, uh, some personal devotions uh, throughout the week, uh, let me just encourage you, jump into the Gospel of Mark and be part of this with us as we uh, unpack the scriptures and get to know Jesus better uh, through this book and through this series. So I'm really glad you're here uh, to tell you a little bit about Mark and this gospel. Uh, One, to know who the author is. Uh, The author is a person named John Mark, uh, and we see him in the scriptures in different ways. He was He was on the fringe of the disciples, had a relationship with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, We see him even in the book of Acts, traveling with them at some point. Uh, Then he came back home at one point and kind of caused a rift in the friendship of Paul and Barnabas. Something with John Mark and his departure from the group um, caused an issue there. Uh, But later we see uh, Paul affirming John Mark later, telling Timothy to bring him along. We understand John Mark to be uh, alongside Peter. Uh, And it's actually Peter who is giving John Mark this uh, firsthand eyewitness account of Jesus, Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry. And so Peter gave John that, uh, John Mark, that um, insight as he wrote it down, uh, giving it to the church in Rome somewhere between the time of 60 and 70 AD. It's the first gospel, uh, the, the first one of its kind. And so to have this account uh, is just an amazing aspect for um, God's people to kind of lean into it and understand what is God doing? What is God wanting, wanting to say? What can we learn about Jesus as we look at this? And one of the questions that kind of um, is a, just an undercurrent throughout the book is, who do the people say I am? You know, Jesus asks that to the disciples and Peter answers that in Mark chapter 8. And that is, it's a central question that's kind of woven throughout the book of, of who is Jesus? Who is he? You know, one of our, you maybe heard our mission statement through the announcement video is our desire is to help one another know Jesus by sharing the gospel in our lives. And we believe this, that to know Jesus, to know God and the one true God and the son whom he sent is eternal life. And so for you and I to kind of prepare ourselves and Jesus, how can I know you better through this book? What can you share with me? How can I understand you more, gain more insight, trust you more, believe you more, love you more through this time of reading the book of Mark together. So I hope your heart's prepared for it. And uh, just to kind of lean in and say, God, what do you want to show me through this study and through, through your word this morning? So I want to jump in. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
the whole Judean countryside and all the people in Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to, to, to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Once you see that Mark's gospel just kind of launches out, it, it just takes off. All the other gospel writers have a way of creating a bit of a framework for us to understand what they're going to say next. Matthew goes back and creates a genealogy from Jesus to Abraham. Luke goes all the way back from Jesus to Adam. John perhaps goes even further back. He starts with eternity itself, saying that Jesus was the word and he was there in the beginning. But Mark's gospel just says Jesus is the good news. He is the Messiah, the Hebrew word for the anointed one, our Greek word Christ. He is king, in other words. He is the son of God. He just throws it out there and says, this is what this is all about, who Jesus is. And he just rushes into it. Mark, um, had, does, he doesn't waste any time. And I, I think it's a little bit like Peter's personality. You can almost just get a sense of Peter, the way he just kind of moves forward. He kind of wants us to be involved quickly. And you're going to see this throughout the book that as we realize the account of Jesus through the gospel of Mark, there is this sense of urgency. There is this sense of something that's happening often and ongoing and asking us to be people of action, not just to be listening, but to be involved. Mark's gospel gives us two Old Testament passages that in this declaration of who Jesus is, he also connects it to a messenger that was foretold. Let me show you this. Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Mark ties this historical hope that has been present within God's story, been present within God's people to not only Jesus, but actually to the messenger himself, to John. And it's why we have kind of John being offered up to us. Just as this book opens up, we get a, a kind of this picture of John the Baptist and who he is and what his role is within the story and what his role is within the people. And John is saying, level the roads, widen the streets, he is a biblical proponent of Cecil Ashburn, right? He is he's like, do something, right? Something big is happening. Something is coming. And so you get this sense that as John is saying, you know, be ready. There are things for us to do to prepare our hearts, to prepare this entrance of something God has been promising, something God has been doing. I remember moving to Atlanta um, about 1997. And it was just a year after the Olympics were there. But in and out of Atlanta, and my brother lived over in Atlanta during the Olympic time, to go over there was to see, even just years in advance, all the new construction, all the new roads, updating every arena and coliseum, new paint going everywhere, right? And so even to, to go over there now, you can still see things that were built 
over 20 years ago that were just specifically to prepare themselves for the Olympics, prepare themselves for this great thing, this big thing and this event that was going to happen. It's the same idea that John is trying to get into the people of Israel. This great, big, amazing thing, this historic hope that has been within the scriptures for hundreds of years, it's, it's happening now. And so there's this movement, this preparing, and John is baptizing people. Now let me just tell you, that was a radical idea. What, what John is doing, uh, one, one biblical scholar said this, it was uh, wholly unique and, and unheard of. Now in our context, we think, well, people are being baptized all the time. John's baptizing, Jesus is being baptized, but before that, there isn't any record of God's people being baptized in what John is actually asking them to do. The only thing similar to this would be when a Gentile would convert to Judaism. And through that conversion process, they would go through a ritual washing, a kind of baptism, in which they would go through a kind of a, a cleansing rite, where they would be washing away the defilement of their past. Now, John is calling Israel, God's people, out to wash away the defilement of their past. Why would a good, observant Jew need to do that? They're God's people already. They're, they're part of the covenant. They're, they're, they're in the line of Abraham and the promise of what God is going to do. And so John is doing something stark and contrasting to what everybody is saying. John is saying you need to get ready. There needs to be a change. And John positions himself out in the wilderness along the Jordan River, and he calls people out of Jerusalem, out of the city, to come see him. Now, what John is reenacting for us is a kind of exodus. John is calling people out out of Egypt, to go through the water, to come out into the wilderness and to be renewed. It's, it's that place. It was from Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness that the people encountered God, where their identity was reshaped, where they had a, a rebirth and a renewal experience with God as their one true God, and they would be God's people. And John is saying, this is what I want you to do again. I want you to come out. I want you to leave things behind. I want you to reorient your life to God. I want you to live focused on him. And I'm going to, you're going to come through the water into the wilderness again. You're going to experience God. There's going to be a renewal happening inside of you. He was calling, he's calling Israel to wake up. I have a, um, I have a, a love-hate relationship with my alarm clock. And I don't know anybody else in the room that is pretty dependent upon their alarm clock, but I've, I've never been a bad sleeper. I've always, uh, always been able to get a good night of sleep, or, and even more. And so maybe there's others in the room too that you know if your alarm clock doesn't go off, you are going to oversleep. And others in the room, maybe you're like, hey, I just get up, I just jump out of bed, I don't even need an alarm clock, and I'll just say, you have performance issues, and we'll talk, you know, that's a whole other Sunday that we'll talk to you about that. But for a lot of us, there's this, you know, relationship you have with your alarm clock, this kind of love-hate thing. And if you understand your alarm clock, you know that it has a snooze button. And if you hit that thing, there's maybe five more minutes of time in the bed, or maybe seven more minutes that you might get to, it never quite works out the way you want it to. But 
I change my alarm clock, the sound of it periodically, right? Just something new, something I'll, something that would help wake me up, something upbeat. I've got something that I like right now. Um, let me see if I can pull it up for you. You know, that you just, it helps move you in the morning. Let's see. Right? That's upbeat. The day's coming, the sun's coming up. Right? You feel like, okay, maybe there's something here for me to experience right now. Just, you're moving around a little bit, and then it starts to kind of fade away. And you're like, oh, that was good. And it's back. <laughs> right? You're not out of bed yet. Keep going, keep going. And it'll, it just it, it gives you that moment where you realize, all right, get up. Move. They have all kinds of alarm clocks. Maybe you have one that you actually have to put your feet on the floor, right? There's this kind of sensing pad of weight that your feet actually have to be up. Maybe you have one that you can just throw. I, you know, I, we've gone through a lot of alarm clocks at, in our house over the years. This idea of an alarm clock, as much as I know I need it, I, I hate it. I, I, don't, I don't like it because what it does is it, it jolts me, right? I'm, I'm comfortable dreaming away, and no matter how upbeat the sound is, it's telling me it's time to do something different. It's time to change. It's time to move. When I was young, a teenager, exploring just how much I could probably get away with sleep on a Saturday, I can remember my dad coming in and waking me up. And he would usually give me that, hey, it's time to get up. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I'm up, I'm up. And then I, I go right back to bed. And this one particular Saturday, I remember my dad going to the bathroom after that and filling up a glass of cold water. And he walked back into my room and he just, just splashed me with it, like in the face. And I'm like, oh, that was terrible, but maybe I could still go back to sleep. You know, and like wet head, pillow wet. Like, and I realized, I, I don't think I can sleep with a wet pillow, wet sheets, wet head. So I'm up, I'm up. There's, there's a dynamic at work here that John is splashing water in Israel's face, dousing them, immersing them, saying, wake up. There's something happening. There's something I don't want you to miss. There's this thing that God is doing, and I want you to be part of it, and, and it's going to be a reorientation of your life, and so I'm, I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out of sin. I'm calling you out of comfort. I'm calling you out of all the things that you've been experiencing. Let's move out of Egypt into the wilderness. Let's get wet. Let's wake up. Let's experience and see what God is doing. And this is what John is kind of inviting us into as we look at him, as, as Mark's gospel opens with John, there's a lot that we see happening through his example, through his message that I want you to see this morning. John preached a message about sin and forgiveness and repentance, not an easy message. In our day, you want to grow a crowd, you want to draw people out, you want to be liked, I'm not sure that this is the message that you want to present. Sin and forgiveness and repentance. It's an easy message for people to turn away from. And yet, as John brings this to the people, it is a gift. It is a gift to them. Because as they begin to sense the distance in their own lives between how they've been living and what God wants for them, what God has for them, what God desires for them, there is this wake up for them. The more they become aware of their sin, the more receptive that they are to a savior. They see the difference of how they've been living and what they've been living, where their life is headed and what God ultimately wants for them. 
How did the people respond? Right, that's a great question. So John's out there baptizing people, asking them to do this radical thing, splashing water on them, talking about sin, forgiveness, and repentance. And how did the people respond? They came in droves. Hundreds. Later, thousands. Some estimate that over 300,000 people went out into the wilderness to see John and to hear his message about Jesus, a Messiah coming, about sin, forgiveness, and repentance that would be the experience and they got baptized. They went down into the water in this outward sign of humility and dependence and turning because of the inward work that was happening in their own hearts. As different as John was in his message, I'll also say this, he was a little, he was a little out there too in other ways. Right? Mark gives us insight into it, like his clothing, like camel hair, leather belt. He, he was kind of, a desert guy, a wilderness guy through and through. And he is, even his diet, what he ate, locusts, bugs, right? Honey. Like, like curious. Like every, everything, everything about John's life was, was in a sense to, it, it, was, it was a lived out opposition. It was, it was a portrayed resistance to materialism and to comfort through and through. His wardrobe and his word, they were like together. And I want you to see that. I want you to see what's happening with John. John was unique in that way. He lived completely focused on God, called people to be separate from the world, found himself living differently. John was even someone that was believed to have taken the Nazarite vow. And, and to take that vow meant a lot of different things. One, it meant that you would never drink wine, consume alcohol, which in some ways, you wouldn't think that's a big deal, but in this culture, in the religious setting, wine was central to so many religious observances. Even the Passover, John would no longer be able to participate in the Passover meal and the sharing of these different cups of wines that would talk about God's promises and God's redemption, God's future coming. The Nazarite vow also meant that you wouldn't cut your hair. No razor would, would touch your head. So John is like woolly, shaggy, and, and, and that he couldn't touch anything dead. So he couldn't touch, and being around death was something always happening within that culture. So no animals, family members passing away. John couldn't be part of any of that. And this idea of even nothing, not touching anything dead, some believe that that meant that John had to be a vegetarian, which might explain this weird diet of locusts and honey, that he wasn't even eating meat. And yet all of these things, from the clothing to the food to the, to the observances, all of these things, they like, they kept making him different. They set him aside from the religious activities of the day. They set him aside from family and social interactions. They, they began to craft his life and, and adjust his life to he was truly living a different way. And yet, all of these denials, all of these changes, all these things that we might say, that's a little odd. All of these things fit inside something bigger that John wanted to be part of. All of these changes, all these adjustments, all these things that made him just a little bit different were part of the things that allowed him to find himself connected to something greater that God was doing. Greater that God was doing. John said this, someone else is coming. Someone greater. I love this because John was undivided. There weren't there wasn't anything that wasn't somehow connected to his understanding that God was doing something great and someone greater is coming. He embodied the message. 
one of his strengths had to be his genuineness. Because when he spoke, his words had power because his words came from someplace deep. John's words were true to him. And so when he spoke them, people sensed that. People were impacted by that. Listen, if if our words are only on the surface, if our words when we speak to one another don't come from something deep, don't come from some place of deep connection, of real sincerity, of being truly genuine, then the words won't last. But what you begin to see with John is John was doing something either when he preached, his words were true to him and they created this power that showed this that John was all in. All in, no matter what. No matter what adjustments it would take, no matter what comforts he would give up, no matter what opposition that he would face. And we get more insight into John's ministry in John chapter three as John has been part of this huge, growing, multiplying ministry, there's a point when John's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, the person, the one that you witnessed about, Jesus, down at the Jordan, his ministry's growing. They're baptizing people. More people are following him. And John responds in John chapter 3, verse 27. He said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's disciples, they're worried. They're worried about the success of John's ministry. The the work that John has been doing, all of a sudden it seems to be waning, right? There's somebody else in town. Jesus is now Gaining gaining traction, people are coming to see him. And John begins to cut through all the confusion about success. His words cut through all the confusion about greatness. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And it's this belief that John has. It's a belief that God is in control. That God is over every life circumstance. That there's something about God's sovereignty that John understands that actually allows him to experience what he has right now and give thanks and be joyful. You realize that God is sovereign. And because he is, we can be confident about the future. We live, we move, we risk, but we don't do that out of fear. We do it with confidence that God is over all of it. John has that. He says, I am not the Christ but I've been sent before him. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And the bridegroom, right, the friend rejoices. John sees himself as part of the wedding party, a groomsman. And when someone greater comes, when the groom comes for the bride, the groomsman rejoices, John. This is my joy. And what what John is experiencing, what you and I can experience is when we realize that someone greater is in the room, when we rejoice in the greatness of someone else, it frees us from the spotlight. It frees us from needing the attention, from needing man's approval. Verse 30, it says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John understands that he must decrease to pull back Man, is that hard in our culture. 
our culture would rather buy into the idea of I must increase so he must increase, so he might increase. Meaning this, make the big sale, become successful, grow something, become famous, become popular, and allow that popularity to fuel who Jesus is. Give him credit for that. Give him credit for the blessings. Give him credit for the rewards. That my success helps him be successful. Prosperity and influence, right, in my life will work out for Jesus. That's what we want to see. That's what we like the idea of that. Except John understands this. Jesus increasing sometimes means you must decrease. Be pulled back. Become a supporting part of the story. This anonymous quote kind of says it clearly. This then is the key to spiritual growth. It's not rocket science, Huntsville. Jesus must become greater and we must become less. It's just that simple. Luke chapter 7 highlights a moment where Jesus was asked about John. Let me tell you what Jesus said about John. Luke 7 verse 24 After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus said, what what did you go out to see? A reed swayed in the wind? And Jesus is referencing a known parable of the day. It was the parable of the giant oak tree and the reed. And the story is this, that both the oak and the reed were planted by the river. And one day, a storm came by. And if the storm was great enough, if the storm was powerful enough, forceful enough, the oak tree could be broken. The oak tree could be toppled. But the reed, however, would bend and sway in the storm and survive. What Jesus is saying is this, is it's the uncompromising nature of the oak that will ultimately be its demise. Yet the reed, as it compromises, as it bends, as it sways back and forth, it stays, it maintains. And Jesus is saying, what did you go out into the desert to see? Were you going out to see a reed? Something that would just be swayed, moved left and right? You saw an oak. You saw a giant oak. And it is a life that is given becomes a life gained. It's a life that is lost, that Jesus would say, is a life that's found. It's a life that is given in sacrifice and service that ultimately experience an abundance of life in Christ. Jesus is capturing us just this This picture of what John was within the kingdom, not just as the messenger and the pre-runner for Jesus, but what he is for the believer of what it looks like to be integrated and to be united and to be all in and to be an oak and to be uncompromising and to be given 
to God in the way that John was. That's what he's beginning to see. John showed us that there's really only two kinds of people. One, the son of God, and two, all others who point to him. You are either Jesus or you are everybody else meant to point in his direction to the greater one. There are only two kinds of people for John. And it was this point that we see of pointing people to Jesus, of waking others up to the greater one that is coming. And we are invited out of ourselves, out of our dreams, out of our comforts to be part of something bigger, to be to be different, even to be misunderstood, to pull apart, to adjust our lives. You're invited to reorient yourselves, maybe as John, to the greater one. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The King James Version translates that a peculiar people. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, the passage tells us there should be something different about you. There should be something different about me. There should be something that people notice. But there's something going on here. Not that you have to work up to it, but it should just begin to move out of you. It should begin to kind of leak out as you were a people now who are peculiar, a special possession of God in a marvelous light so that the light and light of Jesus begins to make its way out of you. There should be something different about you. I'm not saying you need to be a jerk. But over time, people around you should experience something deeper, a deeper sense of love. Over time, people spending time around you should experience some kind of deeper sense of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, right? Like there's this, there's this thing that begins to happen because what you've experienced is more than what John was offering. It's just as far as an external washing and repentance and a redirection. But in Christ, you've experienced an inward baptism that is eternal, internal and renewing you and changing you and reorienting you to a different way of living. To be a little peculiar, you have permission to be a little different, to be set apart. This is what we begin to see happening. This is what John is showing us, that there's a real internal change of God in you. And these things that are happening to you, what do they do? They, they point people to Jesus. Your words become even more true because they come from a place of real change within you. And when that happens, when there's been real change within you, and that change begins to manifest itself in the light and light of Jesus, there's power there. Power to release things that God wants to see happen in the kingdom. Power to change people's lives in and through you. Your peculiarity, right? It's not just found in your ability to call out sin. But it's in your ability to care as well. I want to show you this just before we, we finish with John here, that as we, we see just how different he was and what he said and what he was doing, I want you to also understand the tone behind his words. 
I think John can sometimes be misunderstood. And I want you to see the very passage that highlights his ministry as a voice calling out in the wilderness, calling people to experience real repentance, calling people to experience forgiveness of sins. It, there's something in this voice I want you to hear. I don't want you to miss. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 40 says in verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for your God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all of mankind will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you hear the tone? You hear the words of forgiveness and sin and repentance. But do you understand the tone? The tone is comfort. Comfort my people. Help them. Love them. Draw them out. Let them experience something. God's work and in the world is urging you to be part of comforting other people, caring for other people. Pointing people to Jesus is to bring others life and restoration. It's a ministry of reconciliation. The very thing that you're looking for, the very thing that the world is looking for, it's Jesus. Don't stop short and give them something else because what they really need is the comforter and the lover of their soul. And as you talk to people about where they are, as you begin to reorient people from the way they've been living, as you ask people to wake up and to be part of this new thing that God is doing, it is a ministry of comfort. Comfort others as you have been comforted by God. As God has done the work in you to draw you out, to renew you, to wake you up, to bring you to life, to change. It's the same ministry that we've been given to comfort others. So be confident in that. Point people to Jesus. Be peculiar. Let the life and light of Christ that is within you begin to come out. Let your words be genuine. Let them be connected to something deep within you that is true, that's changed. And if you look at Christ and become more amazed of who he is, Find him more wondrous today than you did yesterday. Just to understand that his worth and his value and his position in your life as Lord and Savior, recreator of your soul in the world, if you'll begin to kind of move in that direction as John did, it'll make you a little different, but it'll make you powerful. And you'll be free. And you will love people deeply because you will want for them the thing that you have. What would it be like for your life to point more towards Jesus? Now think about, it. is there anything that, as we get this new year going, anything that you and I need to wake up to? Have we been sleeping? Have we been in our own dreams? Have we somehow found ourselves just comfortable? And there's something about the way John is living, integrated, his external, his internal, it's all synced up. He's living undividedly for Jesus, pointing people to him, what would it look like for your life to look more like that too? Let's pray.
God, this morning, I believe this, I, I sense it, that there is often a lot of ambiguity in our lives about what our purpose is, about what we're supposed to do with our years, what we're supposed to do with our lives, waiting, waiting to grow up, God, maybe finding something that we're good at, maybe something that we've been successful in to help clarify what our purpose is. But popularity and success seem to only confuse the issue. And John knew what he was there to do. God, do we. John knew he wasn't the Messiah. And because he wasn't the Messiah, he was to point to him to Jesus, to Christ. God, clarify this for us. Hasn't our purpose, because of our faith in Christ, hasn't our purpose already been answered? Point to the one who is greater. Live for him. Focus on Jesus the author, perfecter of our faith, the lover of our soul, the king of kings, the Messiah, the son of God that Mark says, don't miss him. This is the good news. God, I pray this morning that you would help us realize that there are only two options, either to be Jesus or to point to him. And that we would be able to see his worth again and have our lives reoriented to where everything that we say, everything that we do maybe even peculiar at times, maybe even out of step with our culture, is meant to point people to Jesus. God, I pray that as we begin to just finish in a time of worship, that there would be something that you would have us do to maybe make our own vow this morning, to make this next year a year of pointing to Christ, allowing his life to come through us, of waking up, getting involved, jumping in, being on the go. God, what would that look like for each person here to reorient their lives, to point to the greater one? Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll continue to show us what that looks like over these next few minutes as we lift up Christ's name and his worth and his importance to us.